Bitcoin, crypto bubbles, passive indexation. There's a lot of financial jargon out there. Old Mutual can help you make sense of it all and give you great advice to make the right decisions. If you've got a question or want to know how to get the most out of your money, call them on 0860 60 60 60 or speak to an old mutual financial advisor or your broker. Today's the day. Get great financial advice so you can do great things. Old Mutual is a licensed financial services provider. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702, your number one news and talk station. Welcome to The Money Show on this Monday night. The Money Show brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Welcome to The Money Show. Um, we've got a really a big show of big hitters for you this evening. The acting SARS commissioner, Mark Kingan, is standing by. We'll talk to him in just a couple of minutes' time. Any questions for him? 31702-31567. Uh, get those through to me as quickly as possible. I'll be sure to try and put those to him on your behalf. Uh, plus, we've got Nklantanene, the finance minister. Um, he's spent the first month of his appointment as uh, as the finance minister traveling the world, talking to investors, and that seems to have paid off in a big way. And Nklantanene joins us 32 minutes from now to talk about the Moody's decision on Friday to not only not downgrade us, and that's not the double negative, um, it also gave us an upgrade, a mini upgrade of sorts with the view of changing its outlook look for South Africa from negative to neutral. It's a step in the right direction. Let's take it while we can get it. Uh, plus, this evening, uh, we have our Make Money Monday special edition guest sold practically everything he has last year, but 90% of everything he owned. And he went, no, life needs to be simpler. And he moved out of a house and into a flat, and he and his wife are, are living a simpler life. We'll talk all about that at half past seven this evening. Make Money Monday special edition on The Money Show. Show on 702. Your number one news and talk station. Your fast fact this evening in anticipation of, well, I think we should do a biz quiz on, on Thursday. Should we do a little biz quiz, a mini, uh, petit mini biz quiz, uh, but brutal. It should be brutal. My producers are nodding. We have we have agreement. We'll do a, a mini brutal biz quiz on Thursday just because we can. Um, so you need a warm-up for that. Which company was established in 1902? Its original mandate was as an emerging house builder in the Cape Colony. So Cape Colony, 1902. It's just after the South African War, the Boer War, the Anglo-Boer War, call it what you like. Um, but that war ended in 1901. And this company was uh, created in the aftermath of that amidst a big demand for houses. What is the name of that company? 702, The Money Show. The Money Show. SMS Bruce on 31702. Well, our first guest this evening worked his way through the ranks at SARS slowly, slowly. It took him 20 years to become uh, the head of the tax relationships, tax relationship management at SARS. He developed a reputation as a solid technocrat. And in the last month, he's had two quick promotions from his day job, first uh, to the deputy SARS commissioner. And then last week, uh, following the suspension of Tom Moyani, he has been appointed acting SARS commissioner. His name is Mark Kingen, and he joins us on the line from Pretoria. It's been a, a turbulent time, Mark, at, at SARS. Do you feel like you've received the ultimate hospital pass as far as the civil service goes? <laughs> Thanks, Bruce. It's good to be with you and, and your listeners. 
No, I wouldn't see it as a hospital pass. I think it's actually an opportunity, um, an opportunity to to obviously serve the organization, serve our country and, and try and deliver on our mandate, uh, which obviously is quite important as we head towards the end of this week. Um, and the end of this week is a big deadline. You've got, I think your target is 1.217 and probably some Correct. more decimals, trillion rand, which you're expected to have collected Correct. and in the piggy bank for uh, government to, uh, uh, to spend over the next 12 months. Um, how close are you to that target? Well, obviously, this week is crucial, um, uh, Bruce, and, you know, every day counts, and we are looking at it very closely. Um, as you're aware, a few weeks ago, we crossed the, the trillion trillion mark. We, we, we've still got some way to go, but we are confident and nervous at the same stage, you know. It's, it's, it's especially at me coming into this role as of last week, Monday, I'm very nervous. You need to be aware of that, and, and uh, sleepless nights are upon me. But as I have confidence in my people that they're doing their damnedest to get there. I mean, gone are the days of SARS phoning you up and asking you for money. And nowadays there are, as I was reading over the weekend, debt collectors, professional debt collectors hired to do this job as well. Well, just just be uh, uh, take it just to go back in terms of the debt collectors. We have done this before, but they're only collecting a minuscule amount of the debt. We've got our debt collectors phoning and dealing with people on a huge scale across our organization. Um, and that that process is underway hugely. And they will continue to try and collect a debt till the very last minute on Thursday. Uh, and uh, so what what is the cutoff? If anybody owes SARS money and it needs to be paid by Thursday, is it a 12 noon cutoff? Does SARS want to go well, on a long weekend or is it later? <laughs> Legally, we, we can't force the, the 12 o'clock cutoff because business continues thereafter. We just believe it's prudent for business to, to ensure their payments by lunchtime uh, in order that they're properly cleared through the banks because obviously if it does come in late, there can be penalties and interest and people want to avoid that. Mm. Obviously, we'd like the money earlier. We'd like certainty as well. Um, but it's the long weekend that lies ahead and it always is difficult on, in such cases. Uh, which happened from time to time when it coincides with a long weekend like Easter. Are you going to make that target? <laughs> As I said, I'm confident. Bruce, don't push, push me beyond that. Um, I'm intending to, to, to do that. I would love to give government far more than that. If we can give every land we give, it helps in terms of our deficit before borrowing. Uh, and that we would really like to, 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 to do. Uh, I'm not going to ask you questions about the merits of the removal of Tom Moyani or the suspension of Tom Moyani is not yet removed. He may very well return as your boss one day. Suffice to to ask the question about the the mood at spirits and and the spirit of of SARS right now. One would get a sense that there's been a lot of change, quite quick change, um, and, and there must be some level of discomfort. Yes, Bruce, I think any senior management changes of the nature that we've had in the last two weeks does cause discomfort to all staff. I mean, it caused discomfort to me, um, and it causes discomfort to all staff. I have been meeting with staff. Uh, the minister came and met with senior staff and our head office staff on Thursday last week. And yes, we've got to acknowledge that people are um, uncertain in certain areas, but I've be- seen a tremendous outpouring of support to myself, both by my ex and uh, many, many, many staff across the organization. So I think that uh, people are hopeful that we will stabilize and, and ensure that we can go forward with our mandate.
You've been billed, and it may be unkind or it may simply be a practical reality of today's world, but you are being billed as a seat warmer, somebody who is simply keeping the seat warm for the next SARS commissioner. Is this a job you want, or are you happy to, to, to hand over the thorny... It's, quite, it's, a, it's a politically fraught job. It's a tough job. We know this. It is a tough job, uh, Bruce. I am committed to serve. I've said that all along, and I think over the years I've shown that. Uh, I actually... I need to say I'm actually enjoying it. Um, it it's, it's been a challenge, a huge challenge. It's changed my life radically, my family's life. Um, but at the same stage, it's it's wonderful to be able to 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 work with people who are committed, who are trying to do the right thing and 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 just get the organisation on the right path, and that we collect the money that that government needs. So if I'm a seat warmer, so be it. I will support whoever is the the follow up. Um, um, who, whoever the, the commissioner is, I will always support that person, as I've done always in the past 34 years. I'll continue to do that. If I'm asked to do the job, uh, Bruce, I need to say, yes, I will be prepared to do that. Um, mm. But I'm not hooked on that. Um, if I'm a seat woman, I'm perfectly comfortable in that. I mean, do you find people treat you differently now that you're the SARS commissioner? Do people stand up when you walk into a room? Do they call you Mr. Kingen and, and treat you with greater respect? Now, I ask this because Bulalani and Luka, when he did the BE deal with, uh, with Ned Bank probably 15 years ago, and I was asking him difficult questions, says, you people don't treat me with respect anymore. When I was head of the NPA, you treated me with respect, but you don't anymore. <laughs> now you're SARS commissioner. Do, do you get uh, good seats at restaurants and stuff? Yes, well, I haven't, I haven't tried that, and I don't intend to try that. I hope people in that that context treat me as I like to be treated, and that's uh, just as a normal person. Put my pants on the same way, Bruce, uh, as uh, before I was appointed acting. The people in SARS have treated me with ap- absolute dignity and respect, and I must say I've been very gratified and humbled by the way I'm treated. I don't particularly like it. I'm a, a bit of a person who likes to be below the radar screen, um, but, you know, one respects the office. It's not about Mark or whoever is the incumbent. The office is a statutory person who, who is the commissioner. And it's great to see that people do respect that position. Mm. Uh, and that's all I'm trying to fulfill and, and, and give dignity to the role. Uh, it's, it's quite predictable. I did say before we spoke to you that um, yeah, if anybody's got any questions for you, the questions are, of course, as you would expect, all about refunds, um, that refunds, Always. personal tax refunds. There is this perception, real or otherwise, certainly we've had the tax ombud raising this as an issue with SARS of mm-hmm. delays in the process. Are you tackling it? We are, and very much so. So I've had my teams, and I've, at some of the areas I've, I've met with the Ombud, uh, the Chief Executive Office of the Ombud, um, in the course of last week already, um, I've met with my teams. We're looking at, at quick wins that we can do to expedite things. But at the same stage, Bruce, you know, continued fraud continues to, to drain us, um, and we will have to con- uh, tweak those things. But what my message to business is, Bruce, I want to engage with business and find what those holdups are, that we address them. Sure, we can't go big bang and do everything in one shot, but let's eat this elephant together one, by, one bite at a time and find how we can serve business better because we need to build this country and that is how we do it collectively, working together with business as a whole uh, to see how we streamline our processes. Compliance costs are far too high, Bruce. Mm. We need to reduce, reduce the cost of tax compliance Uh, and that really we are focusing our compliance efforts in the right direction to ensure we are reducing the tax gap at all stages. So I'm committed to that. It's my intention to meet with business in that regard and find a way ahead with business to to, uh, streamline our relationships. 
Mark Higgin, thank you for talking to us this evening. The acting SARS commissioner on the line to us uh, from Pretoria this evening. Sleepless nights as he chases a target of 1.217 trillion rand. That is the amount of money that National Treasury has said to him they would like uh, in order to ensure that the deficit doesn't expand, it doesn't grow even further. We've had such good news over the weekend with Moody's and the ratings agencies now back in the spotlight for all the right reasons. Certainly Moody's is, and that is pushing our rating away from the brink of total junk. And it's going to put pressure also then on the likes of Fitch and Standard & Poor's, which do have both our local and foreign debt in uh, sub-investment grade. We'll be talking to Ntlantla Nene, the finance minister, 20 minutes from now, about that move away from junk and whether or not he's getting similar feeling and similar feedback from the other ratings agencies and other big investors in South Africa for those who are currently invested, of course, and prospective investors too. The Money Show. The Markets. Well, markets were quite interesting. I would have expected a more positive response to the news that Moody's did not downgrade us on Friday, yet it didn't come through that way. In fact, the Rand did strengthen a bit. The bond market improved mm. quite dramatically. Um, and the JSE went down by about a third of a percent. Our market commentator this evening from the old mutual investment group is Denzel Berger. Um, yeah, the only real benefit on, over the weekend was the bond market. Our cost of borrowing as a country dropped quite dramatically. Yeah, so it was it was great news, uh, the Moody's announcement, uh, particularly the fact that they upgraded the um, the outlook, uh, and and the beneficiary was the bond market with yields coming down quite nicely, as you say. The uh, the rand was a bit firmer, but but that was mainly against a weaker dollar, uh, against the other currencies it actually didn't really do much. Uh, and then within the equities, uh, yeah, there were parts of the market that definitely benefited from it. I mean, the financials were stronger. Uh, and quite a few of the, the South African-related companies uh, benefited, like Bidvest was up, I think, about 3% odd. Yeah. So uh, there were certainly some shares that benefited. And a lot of the smaller companies, um, you know, a lot of them are actually being bid up quite nicely. But it's obviously companies that are maybe more tied to the fact that he's concerned about trade wars, China slowing down a bit, the commodities were down. Why is life never easy? I mean, well, <laughs> the moment we start sorting our stuff out in yeah. South Africa, um, then the rest of the world decides to start going mad again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we're still operating in a positive global environment. The trade Overall, wars, yes. you kind of think people grow up and we mm. don't get into a full-fledged tra- trade war, which doesn't help anybody, right. and things calm down. Mm. And South Africa finds itself in a far more stable position than we could ever have imagined possible on the 1st of December last year. Well, we're looking for much better growth. I mean, we get another opportunity for them to cut interest rates. A uh, very good chance they are going to cut um, interest rates. Uh, I would imagine only a quarter percent. I heard you earlier. I'm, I'm pushing, I'm pushing for 50. I'm pushing yeah. for I'm, You I'm mean begging. the window's there for a while, and you reckon <laughs> yeah. they must just quickly use that window and, and get it in? Uh, 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 look, I mean, again, uh, that's why I've never been offered a seat at yeah. the Central Bank on the Monetary Policy Committee, because uh, I may be seen as a bit of a hooligan on this. But right. one looks at, the, uh, at, at the, how risk averse the Reserve Bank has been, and rightly so. Mm. The news flow has turned so much more positive in the last three months versus right. the last six months of last year. And they, they missed an opportunity to cut rates toward the end of last year. Yeah. Could have cut. Yeah. I would you know, send, send a signal that South Africa is feeling confident about its own future. Sure. Give 50 basis points and then go to church a lot and yeah. hope you haven't yeah. overshot. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, they've made it quite clear that they're targeting a, a real uh, interest rate of 2%. 
So if, if you're talking about that, there isn't really scope for them to cut, uh, cut a hell of a lot from here. So um, we're looking at one and maybe one more cut after that. I mm. mean, there isn't really much more scope. Uh, luckily, the economy is already starting to recover. Uh, confidence is better. Uh, consumers are feeling a bit better, spending a little bit more. But you, know, you uh, take a lot of the, the, the ability of consumers to feel better about mm, themselves at mm. the beginning of April when you lop an extra, what was it, 30-something cents a litre on the petrol price, sure. you up the VAT rate from 14 to 15%, mm. and suddenly everybody's paying more tax. This isn't a, this, this isn't a, a, a sort of yep. a, a... It's not the Nevada. rich. Yes. <laughs> we're, we're far away from right. any kind of paradise. Right. And it's not the Reserve Bank's job to make everybody feel happy and sunny and shiny no. in the face of higher tax increases, but boy, it would take some of the sting out of it. No, it certainly would. So that's, that, that is something that we are looking for, is, uh, is for that cut to no pressure, help no, things along the no way. No pressure, Governor. Right. Um, they have brought the Monetary Policy Committee decision mm. forward to Wednesday this week because of the long weekend. Right. Um, so we'll know at half past three, by half past three on Wednesday afternoon, Excellent. just how big the cut is. Mm. If we say it often enough, maybe it'll happen. Right. <laughs> um, and before I start getting really rude SMSs from people telling me that I'm, I'm ignoring pensioners who depended on fixed incomes, um, I'm not. But mm. South Africa does have a confidence problem, and that confidence problem could be addressed somewhat um, by, by a bit of a rate cut coming through on Wednesday. A big story on the day, Murray and mm. Roberts. Um, mm. They've got Germans sniffing around, uh, sniffing around. Well, uh, the Germans you're referring to have, have quite a, a decent stake in the company already. It's just under 30%. They've indicated uh, that they, they're buying another 3%. They have agreement to do that. Uh, and the offer to buy, well, it's not actually an offer yet. It's just an indication that they will be looking to make an offer. And so the board of, of Marion Roberts um, need to uh, make an assessment as to whether they recommend uh, that this get accepted or not. Yeah, I mean, do they have any choice, really? I mean, a, 40, well, a 50% premium on the ruling share price, yeah. and the share price has been in the toilet for a long time with no prospect of improvement. This is but this is a nice offer. Well, Sydney, it's a big jump from below 10 rand to 14 rand, but uh, the question is, is that enough? Um, it looks like the valuation could be could be north of 15. Um, so, I mean, that's obviously the work that everybody's going to have to do to decide whether they're happy to accept 15 rand. But um, some indications are there that perhaps it's worth more, which is why, obviously, they're quite happy to offer 15. Well, mm. we, we watch this space with a great deal of interest. It's a, a, a doyen of the South African construction sector. And guess what? It may just be the answer to today's fast-track yes. question. But we'll get there in yeah. just a second. Um, we've seen Steinhoff recover from very, very low levels. Yeah. Um, and also today, there was quite an interesting dichotomy happening in the property sector. Redefine yes. and growth point and high prop were stronger but Fortress and Nepi, anything with an offshore component, mm. big offshore component, to it got nailed today. Yeah, the, well, those companies have been under quite a lot of pressure with uh, a lot of the news flow being negative. So, you know, it, they've been very volatile. Uh, and obviously, they won't get the benefits of the strengthening of the RAND and the improvement of the local environment um, to the same extent that a growth point, for example, mm. would. So we, that's part of the reason for the dichotomy that we had. You're still feeling confident on NASPARS? We spoke to Bob van Dijk on yeah. Friday night, the rationale of reducing their stake in, uh, in 10 cents from 33 to 31 acquired or thereabouts. $10 billion, yes. Acquired $10 billion to spend on, on fun stuff. Right. Um, well, I, I think the message is, is getting through that uh, there's a lot of concern about the valuation of the rump. So if, if, if we can see some way of unlocking that, uh, that would be obviously very good. So listing of some of those investments or buying out some of the minorities, that, that certainly will go some of the way of unlocking value for, for shareholders because that discount has been very wide for a long time.
Denzel Berger from the Old Mutual Investment Group. Thank you very much for coming into studio this evening. Um, yes, the answer to today's fast fact question, which company was established in 1902 as an emerging house builder in the then Cape Colony? The answer is Marion Roberts. And for its first 75 years, the company developed under the leadership of its founding families. Uh, Douglas Murray inherited Murray and Stewart from his father John in 1928 and then co-founded the Roberts Construction Company in 1934 with a friend and a colleague called Douglas Roberts. So the two Douglases then ran the Murray and Roberts. They didn't call it Douglas and Douglas. They called it Murray and Roberts. Um, and they were later joined by Andrew Roberts and they played a leadership role in the formal development of the South African construction and engineering industry. Now Murray and Roberts looks like it will come under offer by a German billionaire called Lutz Helmig, um, and he looks like he is pitching to buy the whole of Marion Roberts. It would be an interesting deal and certainly could ratchet up the valuations of other construction companies. These guys were the star performers, remember, from about 2006 to 2010 um, in the building of all the World Cup stadium, all the infrastructure around the World Cup. And then they were found to have told porky pies and cheated and, uh, and, and fixed prices and got into all kinds of trouble and really haven't recovered since then. Is it time for takeoff? The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Stock pick Monday in the next 10 or 12 minutes. Plus, in Tlantanene, he's scheduled to talk to us in the next five. All about Moody's, the ratings decision. Plus, that conversation we had last time we saw him about how there was going to be a big fight about whether or not he'd be the next finance minister if he ever got the call. I wonder how hard he fought. We'll ask him that. Uh, coming up on the next Money Show, Andy Rice with this week's Heroes and Zeros from the world of advertising. Also, everything you need to know about value-added tax, the science of VAT. It goes up for the first time in a quarter of a century next week. One of the architects of VAT, Charles DeVette, in studio with us, and we're going to talk all about VAT and its implications for you next time on The Money Show. 702 The Money Show. Bruce is on Twitter, at Bruce Business. After Eyewitness News at 7 o'clock this evening, we're talking about the complications around incentives. If you incentivize people to behave in a particular way, you're likely to get a concomitant result. So if you incentivize people to meet certain targets and those targets are very, very hard to match, you may get people cheating. You may get people fibbing, lying, and even occasionally tampering with the ball in a game of cricket. Um, and that's what seems to have happened over the weekend, where so much is at stake for cricket, uh, for, for professional sports people today, um, that when a game isn't going their way, or even if it is, and if they can gain any kind of advantage through cheating, either through ball tampering or, um, as Hansi Crenier taught us, through through actually manipulating the way the game is played then you're going to get a particular kind of result and that result of course isn't necessarily always going to be a fair reflection of the prowess of the sporting people of the sports people on the pitch so we'll talk tonight to pay expert Lawrence Grubb about how you get structures in place how you get the right kind of incentive structures in place to make sure that you don't get the sort of behavior and then you can equate what happened in the field on Saturday with Steinoff and with other corporate scandals as well. When you've got incentive structures that encourage cheating when things go bad, why are you shocked when people do take advantage of those gaps and do cheat? 
The Money Show on your number one news and talk station. Well, not only did Moody's not downgrade South Africa to junk on Friday, but it changed its ratings outlook from negative to stable. And Tlantla Nene, the finance minister, joins us on the line from Pretoria this evening. You've been traveling a lot, a lot of time on the road meeting investors since you resumed your uh, seat at the National Treasury, Minister. Is the Moody's decision broadly the reaction that you've been getting since you since you re-entered uh, the Treasury? Um, firstly, thanks um, for having me, Bruce. And um, now you say I've been traveling, so you wonder when I actually work. If I've just been traveling. <laughs> That's the subtext, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, but uh, that has actually been part of the work. And uh, I got into, into the job just to do uh, that, talk to investors, talk to uh, Moody's, who was here just a, a few days after one um, had been sewn in. So it, um, we kept us on our toes, but um, I think um, the reaction has been positive um, in, in the main. And Moody's was one of those that, um, of course, we were anxious because we didn't know what their reaction was going to be after, um, you know. And they were the most reasonable because they kept us on, um, on, on review after six months after the tabling of the medium-term budget policy statement. But they allowed us to go through uh, the political process, uh, the ANC conference. Um, they allowed us to go to also even up to the point where we tabled the budget, and which was a response also to some of the challenges that the medium-term budget policy statement had presented. Uh, are you are you getting a similar, more positive response to um, to the actions that you've been taking, you and people like Pravin Gordon, and of course uh, President Cyril Ramaphosa, with the replacement of the ESCOM board and the changes we're seeing at various state-owned enterprises? Um, is that being broadly welcomed uh, beyond just Moody's? It is, it is, uh, I must say, uh, because even the investors, when we were in London, I only went as far as London and then came back, and uh, the team proceeded to to the U.S. The reception indeed was uh, quite positive, but uh, again, I would um, want to call this um, a, a, a honeymoon phase, and uh, it is for that reason that we cannot be complacent about it. We do need to take forward our agenda. Fiscal consolidation is um, um, on track. The issues of um, looking at our state-owned companies as a risk and a number of other risks, but also the structural reforms uh, in order to be able to you know, uh, promote growth. But, um, you know, the, all of these uh, things are on the table and we are working on them uh, with uh, a speed and vigor that it, uh, it requires. And, but it's a collective effort. We all are doing uh, our level best. How widespread is the understanding of the imperative of land reform in South Africa? The feedback we're getting is a sense that there is some concern around the idea of land restitution without compensation. Um, Is there an understanding that without land restitution, however, South Africa's future remains perpetually bleak um, unless we find a workable solution to that? Look, let's agree. It is a sensitive um, uh, uh, subject, and it's for that reason that you get the, the different um, uh, types of reactions. Um, the fact of the matter is that uh, I, if it is not addressed where it is supposed to be addressed, it has the potential also to actually um, pose a risk. And I'm uh, actually quite positive and confident that now that it is uh, with the Constitutional Review Committee, it is where it belongs. 
and uh, all the stakeholders are now going to get an opportunity of making uh, their views, of, of putting their views across, but also for a process that is, um, uh, uh, you know, responsible and not reckless uh, to be taken um, forward. As the president has always said, that uh, all of this would actually have to take into account the issue of food security, make sure that we do not impact the economy negatively, but also make sure that uh, we address some of the challenges that we have not been able to address uh, in the past 20-some odd years. What what sort of pressure does the Moody's decision on Friday to not only not downgrade South Africa, but to give us that, that small upgrade from negative watch to neutral? Does it, in your experience as a former deputy finance minister and having served some time as finance minister, does it uh, put pressure on Fitch and S&P Global to revise their ratings next time these things come around for them? Excuse me. <coughs> Excuse me, uh, Bruce. Um, well, I wouldn't uh, uh, say that it actually has an impact on the other ratings agencies because they will also wait uh, for the time. They're not going to um, do anything between now and the next time that they need to to review. But when they do review, um, they will actually also be judging us based on um, what will be uh, the situation then because we now have an opportunity ourselves of um, looking at ourselves uh, in the mirror. Uh, this is, um, I think, the first time that in the in the report of the rating agency, they also even mentioned the things that would actually put you on the negative should you not do or do, and those that would actually um, uh, put you on the positive should you do them, that, which is, um, you know, a very welcome assessment. It's not always that we, we get to that. But um, I think the other ratings agencies will also take into account because ultimately they they all raise um, basically the same the same issues. So if growth um, um, begins to to take off, if um, we begin to address our structural reforms as we are uh, currently doing, they are likely to actually look at us um, in a positive light when well, next they talk to us. What's it like being back at the Treasury? Is it a bit like putting on an old, comfortable pair of slippers that might have, you might have forgotten in the back of your cupboard? Do you, have you got back into, back into the job and does it feel as if it's not, a place that you belong? Not, not exactly. It's like having, them, having been divorced by your wife and you come back and you are told these are your kids and some of them you can't even recognize. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, indeed, uh, uh, I must say, uh, Bruce, uh, you actually come back to an institution that... Uh, uh, still has, uh, uh, you know, that same uh, uh, strength and uh, that is um, has that commitment. Um, not much has changed in the Treasury, I must say, and uh, I'm actually quite comfortable to be uh, back and working with my colleagues. Uh, you know, hard-working uh, group of individuals. It's for that reason that when we went out on the road shows and um, the work that we've been doing with them is indeed almost like taking off for where we left off. Uh, the last time we saw you, you were the chairman of Teba Investments. You were on the board of Alan Gray. Uh, I asked you whether or not you would be keen to to take on the job. And you said to me, and it's a, it's a rough quote, it's not exact, um, there will be a big fight if I they try and... I hope, you don't, a, remember, I hope you don't remember the words I said. Because, you, uh, said what I said. you said there will be said a actually, big fight. There'd seem yeah, a big fight no, to cause someone. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> Indeed, uh, and I tried, but I actually couldn't uh, sustain the fight. You know, I lost the fight. Well, clearly you did. And, and because uh, I must say, um, uh, Bruce, when uh, 
uh, one got the call, what was clear was that the call was not on behalf of an individual, but on behalf of the country. And um, when, uh, you know, you are called upon to serve the country, you know, I had to go and explain to people that I had used the words I used with you. Um, why all of a sudden there's this change of heart where serving the country is, uh, and the country is bigger than all of us at the end of the day. That was the uh, difficult part in uh, resisting that. So the fight I put up, uh, you know, was nothing compared uh, to the pool side, which was uh, the country's uh, demand. And Tlantla Nene, the finance minister, good to have you back um, as finance minister. The last time we saw him was in January. He didn't quite say, I will kill. That's a new part of the story. Um, he did say there'd be a big fight if he was asked to go back to the National Treasury. He did try to resist. Resistance, however, proved futile. And uh, he's had to um, now put on hold his private sector commitments um, and is the finance minister of the country once again. Remember, getting fired December 2015 after about 18 months in the job as finance minister. He'd been deputy to both Trevor Manuel and to Private Gordon, then thrust into the, the very almost impossible position of finance minister at the time as the country's finances were deteriorating, deteriorating to a point where we very nearly came to total downgrade to some investment grade, to junk, and we've dodged that particular bullet. And with a small upgrade coming through on Friday with the Reserve Bank, with an interest rate announcement on Wednesday, the building blocks are small, and as Sintantanina describes it, we're in a honeymoon phase, and it's our honeymoon phase to mess up, quite frankly. Sintantanina, South Africa's finance minister. The Money Show. Stock Pick Monday. Rowan Williams, director at Nitrogen Fund Managers, is tonight's stock picker with some nice and edgy picks for us this evening, Rowan. It's good to get them. Altron, under new management, you seem to like the story as that's evolving. Uh, yes, Bruce. Uh, yeah, I think uh, in today's market you have to look uh, a little bit differently. And I guess the ongoing theme is uh, the recovery of the domestic uh, economy. And uh, Altron, yes, as you indicated, uh, they've uh, done a significant restructuring of the business, sold off a lot of legacy assets, a much more focused uh, technology fo- business, uh, and some nice uh, areas that they're exposed to that I think will benefit from a resurgent uh, local economy. Um, just how involved is the founding family still in Altron? They do have a large stake of around 25%. They uh, swapped out the control structure. Uh, but really, I think it's the new uh, private equity partners that have come in uh, under Anthony Ball, Venture Capital Partners, and they... Um, have uh, installed a new management team and uh, started a process that the Fenter family had begun in terms of uh, continuing to streamline the business and really get it much more focused on its core competences and uh, get out of the manufacturing business, which they've uh, been disposing of uh, for a while now. Um, and then another one which is equally interesting, and that is one of Christo Visa's companies or companies associated with him, and that is Bright, mm-hmm. which is trading at less than a quarter of what it was at its peak when it went over, o- offshore and it spent an awful lot of money buying lots of assets, amongst them Virgin, uh, which seems to be quite successful. One less successful has been a clothing retailer called New Look, and it's actually written down the entire value of that business um, from, what, $35 billion to zero uh, while it tries to rebuild build it in a tough UK retail environment? Yeah, so uh, they have been through a very difficult patch. Uh, they do have uh, exposure to the, the UK economy and the, the retail sector, which hasn't turned out well. They have subsequently 
written off that uh, asset to zero. There have been some concerns that they may have to uh, invest follow-on capital, but uh, there has been a, a restructuring announcement on you. Look, it looks like the creditors are going to agree uh, to a compromise situation there, which I think uh, can see it through, but the investment uh, case doesn't rest on that. Uh, if uh, you keep uh, new look at zero, it's still approaching a 30% discount NAV, which we see as quality assets uh, being the virgin business, the Iceland Foods in the UK and uh, the uh, premier foods business. So that still looks uh, quite attractive at these levels. Okay, so Altron and Breit gets your thumbs up. What And uh, the property sector today, um, we saw some quite sharp sell-offs across the property sector. High Prop, your pick for this evening, had a positive day on, on the JSE. Is this in anticipation of a big, fat, juicy, meaty interest rate cut coming on Wednesday? Yeah, so uh, what we have seen is obviously the Moody's decision coming through on the weekend. Uh, so that was uh, quite positive, in fact, that uh, they didn't downgrade us and actually um, upgraded uh, the outlook to stable. Uh, we did see bond yields uh, come down significantly. We saw the domestic property counters firm up quite nicely. High prop is Kuma uh, dividend, so on a clean forward yield close to 8%, which is uh, some of the higher yields it's been at. And as you indicated, uh, the consumer environment looking healthy, the potential for a, a rate cut, which should be good for the consumer sector and high prop being exposed to its shopping centers. Now, give me a sense of the rate cut on Wednesday. Everyone else is saying 25 basis points. I'm, I'm channeling 50 toward the Reserve Bank. I don't know if it, it's going to get across the Yixke, but um, is, uh, is, is there even the slightest chance that we could get to 50? I guess uh, there is a chance the RAND has firmed up significantly uh, across uh, across the board. And um, we have seen inflation below the mid-range. Um, we have seen the rate increases uh, in, in the U.S., so it would be a very bold move. Uh, they have been quite conservative. I think they're going to stick to the conservative game plan. I think 25 basis points is the right call. It is the right call. We don't want the right call. We want the good call. Rowan Williams, thank you. Director at Nitrogen Fund Managers. All sensible people are saying 25 basis points come uh, Wednesday. Uh, that is the Monetary Policy Committee decision-making day on in terms of interest rates. Rowan Williams, three picks for you this evening. Three companies that have been under quite a lot of pressure recently. Eltron with a new management team and new shareholding structures there. A break. Um, with uh, very, very good businesses in its portfolios and some uh, financial headwinds in the aftermath of the Brexit vote in the United Kingdom. And then property company High Prop, landlords to many of you, um, also making it onto Rowan Williams's list this evening. 702 and Cape Talk, The Money Show. Our Make Money Monday's guest this evening, Simon Brown, the financial educator at Just One Lap. Um, he and his wife last year sold off 90, 95% of their stuff. How did that give him financial freedom? Did it? And have they replaced most of it? Because they couldn't live without it, I wonder. But yeah, looking forward to that. Simon Brown at half past seven. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield. On 702, your number one news and talk station.
Good evening. Welcome to The Money Show. It is Monday night. Our Make Money Monday special edition guest is uh, getting into the studio. And Simon Brown going to tell us why he and his wife sold 95% of everything they owned last year. Physical stuff, not the important investment stuff. That's all coming up in half an hour's time. The Money Show brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Well, Ian Mann, our regular book reviewer, managing director, Gateway's business consultants, his book tonight is all about white-collar crime and what makes people do it. And there's quite a lot of counterintuitive stuff in there. You think you'd understand the mind of the white-collar criminal. Well, Ian Mann, I think, is about to shake that up. But first, why is it that you work as hard as you do? And you do. You work very hard. You deserve to be paid well. You do. Um, if you don't work hard, why not? Is it because you don't get paid as well as you thought you should be paid? The reason either way could often be linked to incentives beyond your ordinary paycheck. You might be in line for a commission on a bonus or if you perform in a particular way or to a particular standard or you hit particular targets. What if you're at risk of missing that target? What might you be prepared to do to make it look like you reached those goals, particularly because you worked so hard to get those goals and it wasn't you, it was somebody in the team who let you down. And actually, maybe you're the member of the team who's let people down before, so now you're going to go to that extra mile in order to reach those goals. We still don't know the detail around, for example, the collapse of Steinhoff and that 95% fall in the share price, other than there was some pretty strong indication that there was some serious fraud perpetuated probably over many years. Do incentives affect behavior on the sports field too? So in the same sort of way as people are, are inclined to cheat on the accounts or to, uh, to cheat on the sales numbers, would you be would that same sort of behavior play itself out on the sports field? You have to assume it does, considering the huge amounts of money that ride on games and the short professional sporting careers of those at the very top of their game. Over the weekend, Cameron Bancroft admitted he tampered with the ball while fielding after TV pictures showed him using what he says was a yellow bit of tape with grit on. It looked like sandpaper to most people. And um, on Sunday, we saw kids taking sandpaper to the side of the field for signatures, which was funny. Um, and an appropriate response. The captain, Steve Smith, missing the fourth and final test after stepping down as captain on yesterday's final day. Australia's wheels did come off spectacularly. But these big cricket players are, are more successful financially than ever before. They're huge sponsorships, they're huge pay packets, they're huge opportunities to make lots of money in the world of professional sport. But are the financial incentives, the way they structured, changing behavior on the field and making it more likely for them to cheat. Lawrence Grubb is the managing director at Coquella Consulting and his job is to structure pay packets. Would you structure the pay packets of professional sportsmen differently to the way in which they're structured now, Lawrence? Good evening, Bruce, to you and your listeners. Um, I think when it comes to structuring packages, one has to make sure, and you touched on it there when you mentioned that they have uh, sponsors who uh, pay them for their uh, advertising their goods. They have a their guaranteed pay, and they also then have incentives for their performance. And I think the, the situation is to try and make sure that there's the correct balance between those three. If there's far too much riding on winning at all costs and very little in terms of the other two, then I think uh, you are going to be encouraging um, you know, some form of, of uh, misbehavior on the field.
And that level of misbehaviour, of course, goes from Hansi Crenier manipulating the outcomes of games, uh, bribes being paid to, to, to batsmen to go out, bribes being paid to bowlers to not bowl quite as aggressively or as accurately as perhaps they might ordinarily do. But it comes to the naked abuse of uh, something like ball tampering, which we're led to believe is fairly common in the sport of cricket. And you have to question whether, uh, whether or not it is possible to disincentivize beyond punishing the act itself. I think, Bruce, there's a few things here. One is, you know, the incentives offered by cricket structures are obviously, you know, significant. But if one is really going to cheat in cricket uh, for money, um, I would assume somebody would rather approach the sports betting world. Um, I'm sure that they would have a lot more money available to entice cricketers to or other sportsmen to cheat. So, you know, I think it's got to be obviously than in the nature of a person to want to or be prepared to to cheat to to win at all costs. I think the other aspect that one mustn't forget about is the incredible stress that uh, a cricket team, especially an Australian one, has because in Australia they say that the second most important person is the captain of the cricket team other than the prime minister. And that shows just how much incredible pressure there is on you know, the Australian cricket team to win. Imagine them going back to Australia having lost a series in South Africa. Um, Unfortunately, the players didn't consider what would happen if they got caught. And that is always amazing. It's like any criminal, why would you do something if you honestly consider what the outcome would be if you were caught doing it? So I think there's always going to be some crooks or cheats in the world who no matter what you do will find a way to try and win or make more money um, and that you just can't stop but certainly in terms of the design of incentive schemes for executives uh, there are a number of things that we do do uh, could you apply some of those things? Because, I mean, this w- one reads the coverage and the, there hasn't been a full-blown investigation into this. Yes, there, there is an admission by Cameron Bancroft that he did um, uh, use yellow tape with grit on um, to scuff the ball. But it looks like they've got a far more systemic problem within Australian cricket in terms of whether there was complicity from the captain, whether there was complicity from management of the cricket team. Uh, when, it, when you've got an institutional rot which may or may not be informed by financial benefit, you, you kind of, and I hate to say this, but you need Mervyn King to come and create um, sort of uh, King 7, the, 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 the governance around cricket. We already have rules. We already have um, the correct behavior in place, but people aren't following the traditions of the game. I'm pleased you mentioned King because King 4, in principle 14, talks about um, the fact that you know, boards should consider implementing clawback and malice provisions in their ah. uh, remuneration policy. Um, clawback being when uh, something is found to be inappropriate before the money is paid effectively, and malice being uh, once the uh, money has already been paid. So it's a, it's a case of implementing those or designing those into the schemes, but that's only one sort of aspect. The other is um, you know, trying to make sure that the remuneration is not all short-term based, that there is a longer-term, um, significant amount of money available for the long-term performance. And also what is being encouraged is minimum shareholding requirements. Um, and that's where your top executives are being required to invest 
up to 200 or 300% of their own annual package in shares in the company. Um, so that's not incentive scheme money. That is your own money that you've already received for incentives uh, or your own money that you now invest in the company. And that money is now at risk if you are, you know, un- if anything is uncovered that's untoward. Perhaps for for sports people, the best incentive is the disincentive, not only losing out on your next match fee, but potentially being barred for life from your income stream. A lot of these guys are heavily dependent on their ability to earn money on the sports field. Is it time for the global associations that represent the interests of these games to take that role a bit more seriously and actually do unto um, 21st century cricket what they did to Hansi, and that was ban him? Absolutely, and I think, you know, this also talks to King Four, where we talk about a culture of ethics um, and the responsibility of the board or in cricket, the administration, to foster and create a, a culture of ethics within the the total sport or the total organisation. And one sort of has to ask then, you know, is that culture being permeated through the organisation starting at the top of the structures in whichever sport it is or which, you know, uh, whichever organisation there is. Um, if there isn't that culture of ethics uh, that is continually uh, being upheld by the board or the administrators, then the people elsewhere in the organisation can't be blamed for, for following. And I suppose to a large extent South Africa is a typical example of that when we uh, see what happened you know, um, from a political point of view. Uh, absolutely. Lawrence Grubb, thank you. Managing Director Kokela Consulting. Do you incentivize or you disincentivize? Do you ensure that the punishments for breaking the rules or for infringing on the spirit of the game, or do you then take away the fun of the game? And does it just have to work on, on shame? I mean, do you uh, appear as a Proteus supporter at the final test in your droves and humiliate the Australians more than normal um, in a way that, you know, you would be prepared to tolerate as a supporter of the Proteus should the sandpaper be in the other hand? so to speak, on, on something like this. It's an interesting one. Um, on to, uh, from one bit of unethical behaviour to another, and that is white-collar crime. We'll talk about that with Ian Mann, our business book review guy, in a couple of minutes. The Money Show. Business books. Well, tonight's book is an unusual one for Ian Mann, who's a very practical kind of guy. He likes the how-to books, but today it's why they do it inside the mind of a white-collar criminal. Have you got a particular white-collar crime problem that you're trying to resolve here, Ian Mann, or is it just a curiosity? Because it is a a shift for you from the books that they usually uh, review for us. Indeed. You know, the the fact is that that white-collar crime, uh, at least in the United States, seems to est- the estimated cost is is four hundred billion dollars now when you 've got anything that 's that large, um, people take it very, very seriously. I think we might have a problem a similar sort of problem in South africa i don 't know but the the fact is that as a result, business schools um, as well as businesses themselves take the business of dealing with white collar crime very seriously or at least trying to address it. The problem is that if you, if you uh, misdiagnose the, re- the, the problem, the remedy is simply not going to work. So if you look at all the sort of remedies we've come up with, um, we, we, we run people through logically dealing with complex uh, um, white-collar type 
situation, so we talk it through, we get them to understand what, and the presumption is that when they're faced with the, with, with the possibility of committing a criminal act, they will run through the same sort of reflection that they would do in quietly, peacefully, as they do in the class with debate, and come to the correct conclusion. White collar criminals are fascinating characters. I mean, when the, the this uh, Eugene Saltis, the author of this book, Why They yeah. Do It Inside the Mind of the White Collar Criminal, um, actually spent seven years in the company of crooks and fraudsters and embezzlers and Ponzi schemers and all kinds of dodgy, nefarious individuals to really get under their skins. Yes, and what he did was he actually had conversations with people in prison. Now, the sort of people we're talking about are the people who, who have overseen some of the most significant corporate failures in history. And he had the opportunity to meet them in prison and have, over time, developed conversations. They said that the answers that they gave and the insights that he got from them were really changed his entire perspective and had nothing to do with the testimony that they'd offered when they were in court. So I think that that's why this book is really important. And if I can just give you a, a quick bit of background, it was only in 1939 that we came up with this term called white-collar crime. Literally, literally, until then, we always had understood crime to mean murder, assault, burglary, and in 1939 it was presumed to be committed mainly by people of the lower social classes. And then you get this, this um, sociologist, uh, Edward Sutherland, who like, twisted people's heads around and said, the record doesn't reflect that. And he gave an example of an ex- a, a grocery store executive who in one year had embezzled $600 million, which is $600,000, which is $10 million today, which was six times the amount um, across the, the chain of, of some 500 robberies that happened in the same year. So he said, we, we're missing the point. The, the real crime in our society is being committed by the sorts of people that we generally presume are the, are the bastions of society. And we've learned so much since then about uh, who the real criminals in society are, and often they're the ones wearing suits. Uh, the, the problem of white-collar crime, I mean, just explain to me what it is. Is it people who believe they can get away with it? Is it people who believe they're entitled to it? I talk to forensic accountants who investigate corporate criminals, and in many cases, the people who are doing the crimes are, are justifying to themselves multiple reasons as to why they're not actually breaking the law. They're entitled to help themselves. The interesting part of it is that the, we, we thought that there's, there's a couple of historical reasons. Historically, we said that criminality stems from your psychological aberrations. It, it's from excessive greed. It's from ambition. It's from a faulty evaluation of the risk to reward involved. And the interesting thing about Eugene Salty's book is that he says it's not any of those, and whatever evidence we have from that is very flimsy and, and, and very thin. He sees it completely differently, and I think he's really, really onto something. Let me just give you one example. Um, the, this, the MD of McKinsey, uh, at the time, McKinsey United States, at the time was a man called Rajat Gupta. Um, not related, Indian, not related. Not related, no. Okay. He's, he's sitting in a report about one of their clients, um, happens to be Goldman Sachs, and he realizes that they're in serious trouble. 23 seconds later, 23 seconds later, he contacts an associate and divulges the news. Before it hits the the, the press, his his associate manages to sell his shares and avoids losing $3 million. 
Gupta himself made not a cent, but spent, but spent time in prison. Now, the point of that is that decisions to make, he didn't, he didn't rapidly make a complex decision. He, didn't, he just worked intuitively. And what seems, to be, what seems to happen is a couple of things. One is that when, I, when you steal another man's wallet, you have to be really close. But when you, the, the, the victims of crime, of white-collar crime, are really faceless and very, very far away. You don't have any sort of real tangible relationship with them, and, and which makes the whole thing a completely different um, order of, of activity than if the person was standing next to you. But the, the, I think the, the real problem is this, that the, 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 the decision-making process, risk-reward, is not even undertaken. It's not that these guys say, well, I'm, I'll make a great deal of money, and, and therefore it's worth it. Consider Dennis Kozlowski from, from Tyco, who was the highest paid CEO in the world, I think, or certainly in America. He, he was he's in jail for embezzling $100 million. And you ask yourself, and what, what was the risk reward at that? That I'm going to embarrass myself, embarrass my families. And the, I think the keenest insights in this whole book um, is, is this description that he gives. Imagine you're driving down the highway from Johannesburg to Pretoria on a public holiday. It's nice and quiet. There are cars on the road, and there's there's really energy pumping music. And as as you're driving down there, you're having fun. You're weaving between the cars. Some cars are overtaking you. When you glance at your speedometer, you're travelling at 132 kilometres an hour in a 120 zone. You're committing crime. Now, what would stop you? What would stop you from doing that? The the fact is. Probably only three things would stop you. You see a policeman, um, you see a fresh accident, or your partner yells at you and says, calm down and, and, and drive, drive properly. <laughs> now, the, it wasn't as if you made a decision to commit a crime. But if, if, you, if, they were, if you were involved in an accident, the courts would certainly say you've committed a crime and you'd, you'd be sentenced for that, especially if the accident involves fatalities. You might even maim the person sitting next to you who's your friend and your partner. And you might kill people in another and the families and the courts will hold you will hold you liable for that and his point is that the, the lots of the crimes that people commit they commit almost not thinking you see the other cars were speeding on the highway too everybody on the highway is speeding Did, or do, does it not worry you that this guy seems to have been taken in by some of the finest con artists ever born because um, the very nature of these people is that they are consummate liars and manipulators it, it, it strikes me that you, he, he may be empathetic towards them and I, I think I actually don't think so the purpose of his doing this this research was in order to teach his Harvard students who goes through the crisis, nobody comes to an elite school like Harvard with the intention of ever being able to commit crime. They think of themselves as going to be the finest leaders in the United States, in fact, anywhere in the world, because they come from all over. And yet 24 of them, of these really, really high-profile guys, are graduates of, of, <laughs> of, of Harvard University. Do we get to a solution? Does he sort of say, okay, how do we stop these people uh, from going rogue? I think that one of the solutions, there are a couple of solutions. One is obviously you're afraid, but the other solution, which I think is really sharp, he talks about a man called Whitaker, who was on, his, on the phone to his, he was involved in an international um, conspiracy to try and raise the prices of, of agrochemical products from ADM. And he says he was talking to his wife on the phone, and he's saying that he, he, was, he was required to fake the expense accounts for the meetings they were having with the Japanese and a couple of others 
around the world. Matt said they were going to meet together for something else. And he said his wife said to him, how can you do that? that that's criminal. What, what are you doing? You're involved in criminal activities. I don't recognize you. He said that moment was like, he said he just stopped. And he, afterwards he, he, he confessed to the police. He wore a wiretap for a while. Spent a little time in prison, about eight years. But it was his wife, Ginger, who had nothing to do with it. They got him to stop. On the highway where everybody else was speeding as well, you kind of feel, okay, it seems to be okay to steal and, or to speed. And I think that it's having a, a, a ginger in your life who, <laughs> who, who, who says, no, no, stop this. What's going on here? They, they, and I think that it's, it's having, the, having people to talk to. Because if everybody in the boardroom or everybody in the company or everybody in the association is stealing, it makes it a lot easier for you to do. And also, what, what behavior gets normalized. I mean, I'm convinced that 90% of people in public and private sector who have been caught up in, in crimes of sorts have simply you know, been sort of part of the furniture and have simply gone away with this, gone along with the status quo and have find themselves on the wrong end of the law eventually as a result of it. It doesn't mean everybody's evil, but it does mean that we need better oversight and we need better, we need to look after our buddies better, possibly. I think we need to look after our buddies better. I think that that speeding example is, is an absolutely beautiful encapsulation of, of what actually happens. You start you're driving to, you know, in the beginning, but then it sort of get, gets caught up and everybody else is doing it. And there's nobody saying stop until you see an accident or you see a policeman. Or somebody sitting next to you says, stop this, you're, you're going above the speed limit. So I think that the, the caution is that we need to, we need to watch out for our, for our colleagues. And, and 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 I think that that partners should watch out for each other, and if and at least they would be the ones not being caught up in the in the in the excitement of of of, of committing crime, the experience of committing crime actually able to stop you. Well, Ian Man, thank you very much. The book is called Why They Do It Inside the Mind of the White Collar Criminal by a professor at Harvard uh, called Eugene Saltis. Ian Man, thank you very much indeed. The Money Show. Make Money Mondays. Have you ever trimmed down? Have you ever, I'm not talking physically, I'm talking about on stuff. It's quite a hard thing to do. You know that there's a whole bunch of the stuff that you have in your cupboard, whether it be in your bedroom cupboard, whether it be in your bathroom cupboard or your kitchen. You know there's a bunch of stuff that you don't use, but you find it quite hard to trim down. What about somebody who's taken 95% of their stuff and got rid of it in order to lead a simpler life? Either they had far too much stuff or now they've got just enough. The Money Show brought to you by all. Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Well, Simon Brown, the financial educator at Just One Lap, you'll be familiar with his work uh, from his numerous appearances on The Money Show, but we're going to get to know him a little bit better this evening. And that big decision you and your wife took, what, nearly a year ago? to cut right back. Take me through that process. Uh, thanks, Bruce. It was actually, the decision was almost two years ago. Uh, we're going back to, what, uh, mid-2016. We were, happened to be on holiday in a small little town in the Midlands and realized that we didn't need a whole lot more space. And um, it happened earlier in the year. I we, we lived in a large four-bedroom house and I was looking to get a shed for my garden because I needed space to store my stuff. And I thought, this is this is going to get out of control. And by the time I'm 90, I'm going to need a province to store my stuff. Um, um, and then we effectively moved in June of last year and, and now living in a, in a one-bedroom, 84-square-meter apartment. 
Uh, that's a, a huge change in attitude and a change in lifestyle. From, I mean, a four-bedroom house, let's assume, what's that, 250 square meters or thereabouts, you've cut down to a third of the space. Yeah, it absolutely is. And in fact, it was a, it was a relatively large house as well, so it might have been a bit bigger. Um, so, so it has been, in, in, in the sense, a huge change of, 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 of how we lived. Um, it, it's been a huge change financially, uh, and, and, and it's the benefits. It's also what we were looking to do. You know, I, I want to be able to travel more. I want to be able to go and spend a, a month in Jeffrey's Bay and, and, and just surf super tubes. Um, but if I've got a, a large cost base back at home, that makes it more prohibitive. If I've got a small little cost base, truthfully, I can live in an Airbnb anywhere in the world. What was it like, though, taking that that step? I mean, as liberating as it might have been, um, did it not hurt just a little bit to get rid of that third pair of tackies that you hadn't worn for 10 years? <laughs> uh, it hurt in places. I, I had a, a, a book collection of, of three or 4,000 books that I've collected over, over my life and from my parents, and, and that really, really hurt. And I, I took the view that I'm, you know, I'm deeply privileged to have, have a, had, a, had, a, had a personal library, a private library. Um, it, it, it hurt in places, but truthfully, it was a lot easier and actually a lot more cathartic because now when I wake up in the morning, I've only got one pair of tackies. There's no more choice. It's, it's, you know, aside from, from socks and ties, um, the simplicity, it really is a case of, of, of cutting it down and, and not keeping that one pair you never wear or that shirt that you love but you, you can't wear because it's sort of, you know, 1980s style or something like that. Or the buttons don't quite go. Exactly. Yeah. The way they used to. Send it on to, 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 to a charity, to someone who can use it, who can repurpose it. Um, you, you, you teared up as, as something that was really quite simple and quite easy and quite pleasurable. Um, did you not sort of reach points in the process where either you or your wife or both at the same time went, but, 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 but this... But I like this. <laughs> so, so we had a, a simple rule that if either one of us uh, uh, couldn't part with it, we did keep it, and we do truthfully still have some boxes That's lurking. Why still, is that why you're still married? <laughs> Absolutely, and we st- and we have some boxes still lurking in some of the corners, uh, which 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 I'm not particularly happy with. Um, but but we weren't initially. We thought we would probably get some storage and and store stuff, and and the more we thought about it, the more we thought that's just silly, um, and and particularly with the furniture and and the like. Yes, you know, we've got a couch, we love it, it's red, it's leather, it's gone. Um, it, it didn't fit, and if we want it again, we can find another and get it again. Um, the more personal stuff was a little more tricky, but in, in many cases, I mean, my, both my parents have passed, and, and my memories of them are, are not of the things, it's of the experiences we had, and, 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 and those sort of bits, rather than something that one of them might have given me 25, 30 years ago. Give me a picture of the freedom that you've got now, now that you are less encumbered by stuff. Oh, I mean, it's, it's just all over the place. I mean, it, it is the case that, that you know, <clears throat> sorry, uh, uh, winter's coming and I, I, I hate winter, so I want to head down to Durban for four or six, week, six weeks over June. And, and it's a simple process because whilst I'm living in an Airbnb in Durban and enjoying the warm weather, I, I don't have a large cost base back in Johannesburg I have to, I have to worry about. Um, the house itself, the flat is just, it's so much easier to, to furnish with, with, with things that you love and things that are beautiful. It's easier to to look after and keep clean. Uh, there's no maintenance and gardens and stuff to worry about. Uh, well, we've just come back from a holiday and we were pondering it last night. And I said to my wife, "It's it's 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 almost it's almost unreal. It's almost not true that it is just so much simpler, so much easier, so much less to worry about." When all those rains were happening in Joburg last week, I would normally be worried about my house and 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 the roof and all of that and the garden washing away and. 
No, it's just a case of it's raining, right? It's great the dams are filling up. Many of us attach our egos, our sense of achievement to stuff. And we surround ourselves with things that are trinkets, um, almost as a tribute to success. And that's a trap that a lot of people probably fall into. I think it is, and I think I think it's a trap that that most of us fall into. And and I'm fortunate, probably for for a few reasons. I think one, just how my mother raised me. Um, I'm also fortunate that when I was coming out of school in the late '80s and early '90s, no one was giving young kids credit. I mean, there was no debt to get into. If you wanted something, you went and saved. But it was it was my uncle a lot who 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 you know he he he'd always he's always that bought everything with cash and I remember you know but the why but you can get credit but you're rich and he pointed out to the how much that extra credit costs um, and instilled in me the sense of it's not about saying that we can't have the luxury German sedan if that's really what you want and what makes your life better. It's by saying, if I have that luxury German sedan, something somewhere else has to give. What's that trade-off? Are you prepared to do it? And, and these are the questions which which I constantly am asking myself. I, I, I want to upgrade my photographic equipment and spend a, a ridiculously large amount buying new equipment. And, and, and thus far, I can't because I'm like, that's a lot of money. Where's you know, What's going to give? You know, I have a camera, it works. Why do I need a new one? And important conversations to have, and you're fortunate enough to have a, a life partner who shares that that philosophy, because I can imagine the conversation goes <laughs> goes quite badly if you don't um, have that, that level of agreement. You you clearly grew up in a, in a very values-driven household. Your mum was a clear influence in the way in which you were taught to appreciate what it is that you had. It, absolutely. I, it, my, my folks got divorced when I was 10. We, we lived with my mother and it was very hard. She she had only learned to drive a year before. Um, she'd had my, uh, I was the, the eldest and, and she was barely 19 when, when I was born. Um, she'd never really worked. Um, and and we, were, we were poor and, and comparatively poor. You know, it, 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 being white in South Africa in the 80s, you were never that poor. Um, you know, we never went to bed hungry but but we were made to appreciate things and we were made to realize that that there was a finite amount of money and that we had choices we could buy chocolate cake um but then there was no dinner for for the next three nights and 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 she very much instilled that into us and 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 made sure that we we were cognizant of our of our of our decisions and the processes whatever they may be however big or small they may seem um and 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 instilled that in both myself and my sister and so often when you've had when people have had a tough upbringing or a, a, a not a, an overly wealthy upbringing when you start earning your own money you can go a little bit bananas and you seem to have have, have sort of gone that way for at least part of your life where you've gone hey money income awesome spend buy get accumulate collect Oh yeah, absolutely. No, make no mistake. Been there, done that. Uh, uh, you know, it's not that I own one camera; it's that I own two cameras and four lenses. Um, and three years ago, I promised myself I wouldn't buy a single camera gadget for an entire year. And and and, and, and there was no blood spot. It was surprisingly easy. But but make no mistake about it. Um, I, I always worked as a kid. I, I got my first job probably about six years old. Um, and and was always working. Always had a little bit of money. 
and was never much of a saver really. Uh, I, I fortunately occasionally would buy some shares and and you know more than because of the odd lot rules back in those days hung on to them. Um, but I certainly in the, during the nineties you, know, you start earning your, your salary sort of moves faster than your spending, so you just move that spending and and push it as hard and as fast as you possibly can. Uh, for me, it was never ostentatious. It was never big houses and cars. It was wine and and, and dinners out and 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 those sort of things, which is perhaps even worse because you just wake up the next morning with a sore tummy and a hangover. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, what was the first share you ever bought? Uh, Dimension Data. Uh, when did you buy it? Uh, 1987. I'm going back, 1987. Um, so it wasn't yet at the heady heights of 100 rand a share. So you <laughs> did okay? No, um, no, Bruce, 87. I, I paid split adjusted. I did a share split in 96 or so. I paid split adjusted, I think, five and a half cents for it. So you did well out of it. I did very well. It, it, it probably, I'm embarrassed to say, remains my single best investment um, because then uh, trying to prove my wife wrong, I sold it at about 64 rand. Um, and, and, well, she was right and, and, and I've never told her that part. Um, so it, it was, it, the, the purchasing was pure luck. It was 87. It was just before the crash. Um, I didn't know really what I was doing, but I thought computers sounded like fun. Um, I'm not sure if I really wanted to buy Diodata, but I ended up with it. And then the market crashed, and I literally, I couldn't sell it. It wasn't worth anything. And, and when they did the split in 96, I got these share certificates in the post, and it's like, hey, I forgot about these altogether. Um, and more just through pure luck than skill, managed to, to, to really hold on, because the split happened at about 5 Rand, 5 Rand 50. And made some decent money out of Dimension Data. Not everybody can say that. My guest this evening is Simon Brown, financial educator at Just One Nap. We'll learn more about his approach to money and the way in which he thinks about it and why it is that he feels the need to teach other people about money in just a bit. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. So the Browns decided to simplify and got rid of 90% of their stuff. Kept uh, the share portfolio, kept uh, a small apartment, kept enough furniture for the small apartment and kept the art. Is the art expensive? <laughs> Um, probably expensive to buy. I doubt it's valuable. Um, we love it, and 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 that was the one the one area which we really struggled with. So we we literally have you know some art piled against the wall, three or four deep, um, up on top of shelves and the like. Um, and and you know, art art's one off. I get rid of a book or a, or anything like that. I you know, I can buy it again. Um, but a, but a particular piece of art which is you know got got story behind it, story as to where my wife and I got it and how we came to own it and why we love it. Um, if we lose that, that, that we're unlikely to ever see again. So we did keep pretty much, I think, all of the, the paintings. And, and, and there were a lot. I mean, there certainly, I don't know, in excess of 20. Yeah. Um, when you look at, at your best investment decision, which was to buy and then hold and get the share <laughs> splits and the advantage of dimension data, which made you some decent money, um, 
it was your the first investment that you made. Did you then add to that private share portfolio extensively and quickly over time? I, during the 90s, no. I, I would come into a little bit of money. I, I remember 94, I, I, I came into some money and I bought some Sasso shares and I still hold them. Um, and then <clears throat> 97 from my mom's estate, I, I bought a bit of shares. I, I, was, I was spending more than investing. I, I certainly was investing. My wife and I both took out retirement annuities at the age of about 24. Um, so, so we had those policies in place. Um, I, I didn't have a proper job, so I never had any pension. My wife did. Um, so there was pension there. But it was it was very sort of odd lot and, and, and a bit here and a bit there. Um, the, the more aggressive building of the portfolio probably really only started uh, in, in the early 2000s where it became very much more initially with Satrix in, in, in December of 2000 when they launched uh, the Satrix 40 where it suddenly became a monthly debit order uh, and then bulk up some money, go buy individual shares and, and build that, that individual share portfolio along with a passive portfolio at the same time. Explain how you do that and how you teach people to do that. So I, I just, I mean, I, I have a little over 50% of my investment is in, in passive investing. And I'm actually looking, I'm, I'm building that number, my, my target over the next probably three to five years to probably get that number to 75% passive. Because, and, and I say to folks all the time, you know, mm-hmm. your, your best investment is, is just is just turn monthly debit order into a passive product and come back in 10, 20, 30 years and you will create wealth. You, you might you know, give you an Oppenheimer or Warren Buffett, but you're going to have created wealth. Um, part of the trick is we, we're in too much of a hurry. Um, and, and I like passive because the biggest risk to my portfolio is is often not you know crooked CEOs or, 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 or politicians or downgrades. It's that we as individuals have infinite capacity to do frankly, stupid things. Um, you know, we, 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 we hold on to the losers. We solve the winners too quick. We, 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 we take advice from some random person in a, in a bar one night or something like that. So I'm trying to kind of remove myself from the process. Um, and, and yet, you know, passive gives me market return, which is, which is an inflation-beating, wealth-creating return over time. Um, you, you talk about great decisions. Have you made bad decisions in terms of... <laughs> Particular shares, particular assets, anything like that? Yeah, I, I have. I mean, yes, I mean, repeatedly. Uh, I Particularly with shares, um, I, I got some brainware shares in the IPO of Pete Dembo's company in 96 and uh, 20,000 rand. And uh, in about 2012, I got 52 rand back when they finally oh. delisted. Um, so forget about, I mean, I... I, I you know, just money in the bank. I mean, it. Um, I, I we moved to Joburg and we bought a giant house for you know no, frankly, good reason. And and I think the big lesson from for me from that was, and it comes back to if you want the luxury German sedan, it's about making decisions rather than just barreling through without thinking about it. My wife and I moved to Joburg and we bought a house and I was working for a bank, so you got a nice bond at a nice rate, so we could afford X amount. So we went out and found a house for X amount. Um, and, and it was, the location was because we were from Durban, it was close to the city where I worked, the airport, because I fly in Santon because the stock exchange is here. And there was no thought to, hang on a second, why do we need this house? Why, you know, there was no thought process. Um, and, and I'm much more, you know, 11 years later, having finally sold the house, it's like, okay, let's think about this. Let's go through that process. Let's make informed decisions rather than just making it up as we go along. 
Do you have vices? I mean, you talked about you like to go for rest- to restaurants and, and drink wine and eat chocolate and drink coffee. Uh, you, you know, you you live a comfortable and affluent lifestyle. Is it a waste? It's not. I, mean, I have vices. My biggest vice is probably first-generation tech, which which I'm finally weaning myself off. Um, there's a new phone out from Samsung, and I, I find for the first time ever I don't need to buy it. What? Um, well, it, yeah, what? it turns out my my old phone's only a year old. It turns out it still works. No. Um, no, it really does. And 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 <laughs> yeah, I, I think I'm getting older. Um, and 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 you know, life is comfortable. My 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 my, my vices is you know I will pay up for for you know for for coffee i i have a proper machine at home and i i spend money on buying good coffee beans and um and 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 i pay up for chocolate far too much uh and and i i like traveling to warmer climes when it's cold um but even those we 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 can manage and for me warmer climes is you know eastern cape or kzn it doesn't need to be western europe um so i'm probably actually a bit of a boring penny pincher in in some senses there is there's a huge amount to be said for being a cheapskate and as long as you pass on the lessons of your cheapskateness and a way that people will relate to as you do um that is a good and, and healthy thing does anything excite you about money i mean clearly you're very parsimonious and you've become more careful as you've got a little older um but did, what what is the one thing that excites you about the power of money i, I suppose it's opportunity and it goes back to one of the mo- things my, my, my mother taught me she always taught my sister and i that we could be absolutely anything we wanted and, and she made us believe that she she I mean, she absolutely made us believe that we can be anything that we wanted she also taught us that we could have anything we wanted um just we we had to work for it we had to get it it wasn't going to arrive one door one morning at the door with a, with a red bow on it um and 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 money's that money's an, a, an ability to 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 you know i, I don't have a, a stressful life I, I i i'm afforded the luxury to not have to to work for a large corporate and, and put in 10 or 12 hour days um and and it's money that that affords me that and if i frankly if i worked harder i could probably be better off but there's a there's a a balance between between enjoying life and 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 the sort of mechanics behind it, and I, I'm fortunate, and I also enjoy what I do. What great lessons this evening from a man who teaches about money for a living, financial educator at Just One Lap, Simon Brown. Thank you for coming in and sharing the story, and lots of people on the SMS line deeply inspired by your chucking away the stuff stories. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Lovely show this evening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you missed bits of it, please do download the podcast. You can ask Siri and she will, if you say, please pay the Money Show podcast, she will. And she'll deliver it straight to your phone. That is it from the Money Show for this evening. Chat again tomorrow. Till then, bye-bye.